Well, we are um, continuing our Advent series this morning. Uh, last week, Matt kicked us off uh, at the start of chapter one of Luke, carried, uh, covered an enorm- enormous amount of material last week. Uh, this week, we're picking up the series. Really, what we're doing in, in this Advent series, by the way, is we're looking at, the th- at three Christmas songs through Luke 1 and 2. Firstly, Matt, last week, uh, we looked at the Song of Mary, famously called the Magnificat, which is the Latin, uh, Latin word of the first word of the, uh, of the hymn. And so that was Matt last week. Uh, today, we're looking at the Song of Zechariah. We just heard Elise share with us the story of Zechariah. And today, we'll be looking at his song, which is being given the title through church history, the Benedictus, which comes from the Latin word, from the first word of, of this one. And then next week, in chapter 2 of Luke, we'll see the angel's song, when Christ is born, which has a Latin name as well in a Christmas carol that we sing, but we'll leave that for next week. Um, so, well, by the way, before I keep moving, um, like last week, after the service, what we'll do is we'll play a piece of music that was written uh, for the Benedictus. So last week, I believe Matt played the, uh, the Magnificat after the service. Uh, the Benedictus will play after the service as well. It's all in Latin, so we can't really understand it, but it is the text that we're reading today, and it is epic, and I encourage you to give it a listen. Um, let me pray before we jump into our message today from Luke 1. Um, I'm going to pray a traditional Advent prayer. So would you pray with me today? Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which your son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, that we may rise to life immortal. Through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Um, In his book about marriage, Tim Keller tells a story of a big fight him and his wife had. Um, They they just planted a new church in Manhattan, New York, and, um, and they'd kind of figured out that life was going to be crazy for about three years as they planted um, Redeemer Presbyterian in, in Manhattan. Um, and then, so the deal that they kind of made together was that, okay, for three years, life is going to be crazy, like really unhealthy, crazy, busy, frantic. But then after that, we'll transition back to normal life. And so that's the deal that they had going in to church planting was three years of crazy and then back to life as normal. Three-year mark comes and goes. And every time they have this conversation about, hey, it's, remember how we said the three years we'd, we'd, we'd pull back? Um, whenever that conversation came up, he was always like, soon. There's just some more things to do, right? There's, it's not, not yet. Just need, I just need a couple more months. And this happened again and again and again and again. Until one day, he tells the story of arriving home from work and finding his wife sitting down with a hammer, destroying their precious fine china that they'd got for their wedding, uh, these, these precious uh, plates and china. And you're a bit, a bit surprised at this, right? I'll, just, I'll, I'll read you what he says. This is his account of the events. Um, he says this. 
She looked up and said to me, you aren't listening to me. You don't realize that if you keep working these hours, you are going to destroy this family. This is what you're doing. And then she brought the hammer down on another saucer. And as we talked, it became clear that she was intense and laser-focused, but not in a rage or out of control emotionally. She spoke calmly but forcefully. Her arguments were the same ones that she'd been making for months, but I realized how deluded I had been. I was addicted to the level of productivity that I have achieved. I love this story. It's so funny. Um, I don't recommend this strategy at marriage counseling, by the way. Um, this is not like a go-to. Just like start destroying stuff, try to get each other's attention. Don't do that. Um, but you can kind of picture the scene, right, of this calm lady calmly destroying precious things. Uh, and while trying to explain to her revered pastor husband that he is destroying their, fa their family. You can kind of imagine the picture. All because he just wasn't actually listening to what she was trying to say, or had been trying to say for the last few months. Again, not a tactic I'd recommend to you married couples. Um, so don't try this one, I don't think. Uh, but I think, like him, our tendency to want to kick things down the road, our tendency to just being blind to what's actually really important because we're just busy with life and there's more stuff on the agenda, there's more stuff to do, there is a a tendency that we have, I think, to just push through and we're blinded by things that are really important sometimes. And just like him, sometimes it takes us something really out of the ordinary to actually get our attention on what's staring us in the face and something that is really, 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 really important. And chapter one of, of Luke's gospel is, is a bit like the Lord smashing plates for us to try and get our attention because he has something very important he wants to communicate to us through Luke 1. He wants to get through to us. He wants us to sit up and pay attention and to listen to what he's saying. And so that's, that's um, something to keep in mind as we, as we start moving. Um, we're going to Luke gospel, uh, Luke's gospel, chapter 1, from verse 57. And we're going to see the story that we actually just heard uh, Elise share with us from the kids', kids book. Um, a story of an old, faithful couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. An old, faithful couple. Uh, verse 6 and 7 we looked at last week um, tells us that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. So he's a priest who works in the temple of God, serving God, and for whatever reason they haven't been able to have, have children, and now they're both old. And one day, Zechariah is burning incense in the temple, uh, you would have heard the story just before, when an angel appears to him. And an angel tells him, you are going to have a son, and his name's going to be John. And Zechariah, he just, he just can't believe what it is he's hearing, and so he reacts by, with just disbelief. He just can't believe it. And so he starts asking all these questions and listing reasons why it's just not possible this will happen. And the angel, because Zechariah fails to respond with faith, the angel gives him an interesting punishment, I think. Temporary deafness, temporary muteness, 
um, until the baby comes. He can't speak until the baby comes. And so he comes out of the temple, having just met this angel, received this prophecy of this, of this um, son, and then has been unable to communicate with those whom he works with about what just happened. So you can imagine him coming out of the temple. Can't speak, can't communicate. Luckily, this guy is a top-tier charades expert, and so he's able to sign, you know, I saw big um, angel, angel, I don't know how to do angel. And you can imagine, um, imagine that conversation. I don't know how you have a conversation when you, when you can't speak. But somehow he manages to communicate, this is what's happened. Somehow he manages to communicate to his wife because, I mean, this has pretty significant implications for her, correct? She's going to have a baby. And that's pretty significant for her. And so you've got these incredible series of events that have happened through Luke's first chapter of his gospel, right? Two ladies, Mary and Elizabeth, Two ladies, one young, one old, miraculously pregnant. Miraculously so. You have two angels, well, the one angel, uh, the same uh, angel both times, Gabriel, miraculously appearing to these two ladies to prophesy and to inform these ladies of these miracles. And you also have two names that are decreed by God himself. You shall call him John. You shall call him Jesus. Two names delivered from God himself about who these boys are to be. And in reading this story, we should really, I think, come awake to the fact that God's really trying to tell us something here. Miracles coming thick and fast to us. God really wants us to pay attention to who these two boys are. And this is what we pick up in verse 57, which is the start of our passage. Fast forward nine months from that day that Zechariah met the angel. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. She bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. And so they rejoiced with her. I love this. This is a communal affair. This is all her friends and family. They are just so over the moon for this couple that they love this beautiful old couple who they love with all their hearts. They've heard, the Lord's heard their prayers. Verse 59. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives are called by this name. So again, this is very traditional culture. There's a right way to do things. And the tradition is that, you know, you name your kids after family names. There's a right way to do things, right? And so the, 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 the in-laws are getting a bit pushy here. And they're like, well, it's baby Zechariah. <laughs> this was like, no, 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 no. No, no, his name's John. And they're like, hmm. For the last nine months, her husband's not, not been able to speak. She's been winning every argument. I wonder if he knows that the baby's name is John. And so they go to Zechariah to say, hey, like... I don't know how, they, they, read verse 62 with me. And they made signs to the father. So they're playing charades as well, right? Um, inquiring, what he's to, what's he to be called? So they're like, baby, who? Baby, who, who's the baby? Who's the baby? Um, they're signing, what's his name? John asked for a writing tablet and wrote his name. I'm really good at charades, by the way, um, clearly. 
um, they asked for a writing tablet and he wrote, his name is John. I love this. And they all wondered. You can imagine this moment, can't you? This, um, this miracle baby promised by an angel, this man who's not been able to speak for nine months because he'd met this angel, and then all of a sudden this baby is born and they're all happy and excited, and now his name is John. Not Zechariah, or not a family name. John, by the way, means the Lord is gracious or graced by God. And immediately, it says, verse 64, and immediately his mouth was opened after he's just named his his miracle baby. His mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the, land, for the hand of the Lord was with him. You can just imagine, just imagine being there as a witness to these events, as, as just a, a relative or a watcher on or a. You know, the expectation around this baby is immense. It's prophesied baby, miracle baby. Who is he? What does God have for him? What is God doing here? And I love this line where it says that this fear came upon everyone. And the word begins to spread because everyone's asking the same question. What is God doing here? Everyone is acutely aware that God himself is doing something specific. God's on the move. God's on the move. He is at work in this moment. They're all acutely aware of that. Let me, let me just press pause for a moment and just ask you a question. Are you aware of the Lord's work around you? Are you paying attention to what he is doing around you? Because the Lord is always at work. He is never passive. He is always active. He's always moving forwards. And right now, he is still on the move. Maybe not with uh, angel appearances and miracle babies, but he is still on the move. John Piper put it well one day a couple of years ago when he said that God is always doing 10,000 things in your life. And you may be aware of three of them. Maybe three is a bit generous. You might be aware of one of them. You might not be even aware of one. But the Lord is always doing 10,000 things in your life. Are you awake to it? Are you awake to it? Do you believe that? Because he's, he's always on the move. He's always trying to speak to us. He's always trying to grab us by the hand and lead us into green pastures, still waters. He's always trying to equip us for the battle that we have to live against evil in the world and against sin inside. He's always trying to use us in this world. The Holy Spirit's always guiding our steps. Are you aware? Because the people in this story, are they, they, they have a sense of fear. Why are they afraid? They're afraid because they're aware that God's he's, he's at work. We're, we're standing on holy ground in this moment. The Lord is with us. And so the question I have for us is, do we have those same eyes of faith to see the Lord moving in our life? Do we have those same, the same heart of faith that is quick to trust him and believe him, trust his promises? Are we paying attention to what he's doing around us? So, 
So what was God doing in that moment? If he's at work, if there's this understanding from the people that that the Lord is doing something, what is it that the Lord was doing? Well, the Benedictus, the Song of Zechariah, is going to help us see. It's going to give us an answer. Um, I'm not sure if you've spent any time with new parents, brand new parents. We have a bunch of brand new babies in our church, so you may have some experience of this. Um, I was a new parent once. Now I'm an old parent. Something happens when people have, have a baby for the first time. Um, they low-key lose their minds. Low-key lose their minds. And there's something wonderfully beautiful and right about that, right? Uh, it's, it's something good, good and right. But all of a sudden, the entire world revolves around this baby. Something good and right about that. All of a sudden, um, all they can do is talk about their new baby and think about their new baby. It's like, you know, this creature is the most wonderful creature to ever exist. He slash she, and this is me, so I'm, I'm like, I'm canning myself in this, right? But this creature is it's one of a kind, unique. Yes, there's 7.9 billion of them, but this one's different. Um, he's going to be a rocket surgeon. He's going to be, you know, an Olympic medal-winning Oscar-winning athlete. Um, given this phenomenon that parents are just rose-colored glasses with their kids, and again, that's good and right to a degree, um, you would think that the Song of Zechariah would revolve around this miracle that he's just taken part in. You'd think that, right? Like, this is his baby boy. He's been waiting for this baby boy. He's not been able to speak. He's been thinking about this baby for nine months, and he's, he's consumed with his new son. John. And yet what comes out of his mouth is a song of praise to God. John gets two lines in the Benedictus. So his son, his, he features, but this is a song not about his son, but about the coming saviour of the world. It's a song about the Messiah, not his miracle son. And the song is prophetically answering the question, what kind of Messiah, what kind of saviour is, is he going to be? Who's the Messiah going to be? What's he going to be like? And so we'll, we'll crack the thing uh, apart into three parts. Three, three answers to the question, what is the Messiah like? What kind of savior is he? Firstly, he's the fulfilling God's promise of the savior, which is verse 68 to 75. He's the savior from sin savior. And he's the light in the darkness savior. He's the fulfilling God's promises saviour, the saviour from sin saviour, and the light in the darkness saviour. So firstly, what comes out of his mouth? He is the fulfilling God's promises saviour. This prophetic song that comes out of Zechariah's mouth is filled. It is chockers. It is, you couldn't fit more Old Testament references and allusions and quotes in there. There is about 33 of them in just a couple of lines, all of which were written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years prior. Zechariah is saying again, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the time of fulfillment has come. This is what he says. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. Just quickly, 
um, this, this imagery of the horn of salvation. In the Old Testament, the horn is a symbol of strength and might and victory. It's like a military symbol. Um, and just think like the horns of a bull. It's a symbol of power in the ancient world, right? And so God has raised up this mighty leader of incredible power who's going to have victory over his enemies. And he's in the line of King David, just as the prophets have said. 71. That we should be saved from our enemies, and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant to us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. He's saying that God is going to fulfill all these promises that he's made to his people through the Messiah. This is why this, this matters for us today. The truth is you can't fully understand the coming Messiah or who Jesus is at Christmas. Christmas kind of falls apart if you don't understand the prophetic expectation in the Old Testament of the Messiah. Without the Old Testament, the coming of Jesus makes little sense. Let me say it that way, maybe. Um, I think that um, this is at least one of the reasons why so many in our world don't understand Christmas at all. Because there's very little understanding of who the Savior is, who this baby is born in a manger. He's just a baby born in a manger, right? But no, his coming is the fulfillment of so many ancient prophetic hopes and expectations that without those the significance of his birth is just totally misunderstood and underappreciated. It's like, um, it's like, it's, it's the reason why people think Christmas is about Santa and about family um, and glazed ham and those kind of things. But, you know, saying that Christmas is about that stuff is like me saying my wedding day is precious because there was a cake. It's like, the cake was, that's not, that's not why that day is important to me, right? There's something much deeper at play. The birth of Jesus is the visitation of God upon the world. The birth of Jesus fulfills the hopes of the coming king in the line of David. The birth of Jesus fulfills the hopes of the promises made to Abraham. He is the horn of salvation that will bring salvation against the great enemies we face, sin and death. Jesus is redemption incarnate. He is hope with flesh and blood. He is the fulfillment of God's promises. He is the fulfilling God's promises Savior. Secondly, he's the Savior from sin Savior. Um, this is actually in, in verse 76 to 77 is where we see a little bit of, little bit of the song dedicated to, to John, uh, the, the beloved newborn son. I love this. I think you can hear in these words the tenderness that Zechariah has for his newborn son. He loves him. And you can hear the emotion in his voice. He says, and you, child. And again, you can imagine him holding his baby, <laughs> looking into his eyes and saying, and you, child, you'll be called the prophet of the Most High. And you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give, salva to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. 
because of the tender mercy of our God. Here we learn firstly that John was to be a prophet. One of the, uh, well, the last of the Old Testament prophets, so to speak. The final prophet. In fact, Jesus would go on to say some amazing things years later when Jesus grew up. He would say some amazing things about John. Jesus would say this in Matthew eleven eleven. He would say, This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. He's, he's quoting Isaiah there. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, who does that include? Everyone. Everyone's born of woman. Among those born of woman, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. I mean, just imagine. Imagine getting the privilege to A, baptize Jesus. B, have Jesus say, this is the guy who was sent to be my forerunner. And then C, this is the guy whom there is no one greater ever to live than this guy, John the Baptist. I mean, imagine, imagine the honor. It's a staggering thing that the Lord has just said. Prophecy about John is that he would go ahead. He would prepare the way. This is what Isaiah 40 verse 3 just said, that, I, uh, that Jesus was quoting. He'd be the forerunner. He, he's like the best man at the wedding. He's, his job is to make sure everything goes well for the bride and groom. He's not the star of the show. He's to get everything ready. But notice his purpose, verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. You know, the great misunderstanding that John was coming to correct was that everyone thought that Jesus was coming to bring political salvation. He was there to overthrow Rome. He was there to establish, re-establish the nation of Israel and to sit on the throne. And so John has to come and say, no, 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 this is, this is much bigger than that. So much bigger. The Lord has come to bring eternal salvation. Salvation not from Rome, but salvation from sin, salvation from death. From the moment each of us are born, we are born into a life defined by the spiritual cancer of sin. We sit underneath the eternal death sentence of sin. And our greatest need is for a saviour. Our sin separates us from God, places us underneath his good and right judgment. The day is coming where we'll stand before him and give an account for our lives. But because of the tender mercy of our God, there is a way. The cross of Christ is the full and final payment for our sin. What does Jesus say on the cross? His last words, it is finished. It is finished. The payment has been made. Every other religious system out there is some version of earn, earn, earn. Work, work, work. Uh, try harder, do better, earn your way forward. Even, the, even like the Christmas, the modern secular Christmas, right? What's the Santa song? He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good. For goodness sake, be good. 
earn, 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 work, 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 perform, 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 do better, try harder. The words of Christ to us. Receive. Receive, receive. It is finished. So slow down, pay attention, sit down, open up your hands, and, tr- and receive what I'm trying to give to you. In humility and in faith, receive divine grace from above, Receive salvation from your sin. Receive endless love that stretches to the heavens. Receive a new start. Receive a new heart. It is finished. Full and final payment because of the tender mercy of our God. For those of you today who have yet to receive the good gift of grace that is on offer for you, it can be yours today. Not by working or earning, but through receiving in humility. And for those of you who have received this gift of grace, you know, the Bible warns us strongly that we must continue in that grace with thankfulness. We cannot continue to live on yesterday's faith. We must continue to trust Him, continue with thankfulness, continue in the grace we have received, never taking it for granted. He is the saviour from sin, saviour. And finally, just quickly, he is the light in the darkness, saviour. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Isn't this beautiful? Sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. That's us. We are born into the shadow of death. We need this light. And the good news of the gospel is that although we are stuck in the dark, the light has dawned and Christ himself is that light. He is the light of the world. He is our light in the Savior's darkness, uh, uh, Savior. I think we don't spend enough time sitting in the fact that we live in the darkness. We um, don't like to much dwell on the fact. But we are all trapped underneath the shadow of death. Each and every one of us. None of us have that power to overcome it ourselves. No matter how much we avoid it, we, it's coming for all of us. And the myth of progress that our world preaches to us is that if we just keep working... <laughs> If we just get smarter and we educate more people, then we can solve all the problems that face us and it'll all be okay. And it's just not true. You know, one, um, one um, article in the New York Times uh, said that, um, you know, the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and we'll be able to put together a world of unity and peace. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, in other words, what it's saying is that, you know, you, we have the light in us. You have the light in you, and we can dispel the darkness if we just work together. We can change the world. We can end poverty and violence and evil and, and, and destroy everything that's holding us back. And it's just not true. How has that gone for us? As technologies move forward, we've just got better at destroying stuff. It's time for us to realize and acknowledge that we can't dig ourselves out of the hole that we've dug for ourselves. We can't dig up. There is only one who can save us. 
He alone brings light to those who sit in the darkness. He alone is the sunrise that visits us from on high. He is our only hope. He alone can dispel the darkness of the shadow of death. He alone can guide our feet into the way of peace. There is one saviour. There is one gospel to which I cling for all eternity. We just sung. So friends, this Advent season, as I close, let's remember, let's pay attention to what the Lord is doing around us. Let's remember the Savior he has sent us. Let's pay attention to him this Christmas. Let's remember that he's coming again. He's promised us. The Lord is coming again. He will finish what he started. There is a day coming where that sunrise will, will dawn in its fullness. And the world will be free from death and tears, and fear. And that day is coming. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these promises we have in your word. Lord, you are the light in the darkness. You are the sunrise that visits us. Lord, we cannot work our way out of the problem that we're in. We need you. Help us see that with freshness. Lord, we live in so much denial, self-denial. We love feeling like we are the answer to our own problems. But Lord, our greatest need is not something that we can provide for ourselves, Lord. Lord Jesus, you are the promised one. You are the promised Messiah. You are the King. Would we see who you are in all of your fullness. Would we receive you for who you are in all of your fullness? And Lord Jesus, you came. You came for our greatest need, Lord. You came to free us from sin. You came to give us new hearts. You came to atone for our sin declare us righteous in the eyes of our, our God that we might serve you in holiness and righteousness all of our days Lord help us to receive again afresh the gift of grace you are trying to give to us today and we pay attention to you would we never fail to give you the glory you deserve in every area of our lives would we recognize that wherever we go, we stand on holy ground because your Holy Spirit is within us? And finally, Lord, we confess you are the only light in this world. We are hopeless without you. We need you. Would you continue to work within us? And would you sustain us until that day where we meet you face to face to face? in the bright new dawn of heaven. 
sustain us until that day, Lord, we pray. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.